0: Welcome to the Modern Carnivore Podcast, a guide for those interested in hearing more about hunting, fishing, and other paths to eating more responsibly. Now, here's your host, Mark Norquist. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this Episode 7 of the Modern Carnivore Podcast, I'd like to thank everyone who has been sending notes and uh, positive in terms of asking when our next episode was coming out. And I do need to apologize because I have been relatively inconsistent in pushing these out uh, recently, and that's mainly a function of a very busy lifestyle And I love this platform for having conversations and introducing new people to you and new topics. And so I'm really going to put an effort this next year around putting out episodes more consistently. So uh, look for that. And again, I appreciate your positive feedback on, on uh, on the recent episodes. So today I am joined by Dr. Lou Cornicelli. Uh, Lou is a leading wildlife biologist who has really dedicated his career to the study of large ungulates. For those of you who aren't familiar with the term ungulates, it is a hooved mammal. Uh, so things like deer, elk, moose, etc. And he is the wildlife research manager for the Department of Natural Resources. What we talk about today is a little bit of the history of science in managing wildlife. Uh, for those of you who listen to other podcasts, it is the North American model that we reference quite often. We talk about a pretty serious issue, and that is chronic wasting disease, or CWD. We do pretty deep dive so that you can better understand the facts around it. And then on the back half, uh, Lou talks about a, a recent uh, a little bit of a while ago, but uh, a, a recent elk hunt in Colorado up at eleven thousand feet where he packed in with some horses and took some new hunters and their experience so the the main bulk of today's conversation is on a very serious topic, and that is chronic wasting disease or CWD in deer. I'll give you a little bit of background and just to try to take a lot of this deep science and, and try to make it into some, some manageable chunks to understand. What it is, is a, it's a, it's a protein or a misshapen protein that causes uh, holes in the brain of the animal and in, in deer, in, the, in this case, that we're focusing on. It was first discovered in 1967 in Colorado, and it's similar to um, bovine spongiform encephalop- encephalopathy which is BSC, but the more common term is mad cow disease, or Creutzfeldt-Jakob, uh, uh, which is hard to say. I don't even know if I pronounced it properly there. But it's a very rare disease. That's a very rare disease in humans. Uh, it's, it's it's important to note that CWD is not found in in, in to transfer to humans. Uh, they have not found any, any proof to that. Uh, they st- they've been studying it for quite some time and it's a slow growing disease, but it is impacting the population levels of deer is what they're finding. And so that's where a big concern comes about. It's been found in at least 24 states. And basically we're going to have to live with this disease in the wild deer herd. But we can manage it in the best ways possible, and that's that's I think something that is important. And again, know that there isn't any evidence that this disease can be transferred to humans. Now that being said, the CDC does recommend not eating any meat from an infected deer um, just to just to be just to be safe. But this disease really does cause concern for all of us both the health and safety of our wildlife, as well as the economic costs and risks to activities like deer hunting, which in the state of Minnesota, hunting both deer and other animals represents about $1.3 billion of economic value to the state every year. So it's a a very significant economic impact, as well as all of the other benefits of, of this form of hunting. So I, I also want to to preface this conversation for new hunters with with the the statement of you know don't don't let this discussion dampen your enthusiasm about getting out into the woods. This is an issue that you need to be aware of and you need to understand it better. Hopefully today's discussion helps in that process. But it shouldn't stop you from continuing your hunting journey. Uh, make sure you engage with others and ask questions so that you're informed on the topic and you know what's, what's going on. So a personal note now. Um, this topic of CWD has gotten very personal for me in just the last 24 hours. This upcoming discussion, you're going to listen to Dr. Cornicelli and I talk, and we actually recorded this in the fall of 2017, so a a while ago. And we reference in that discussion a cervid farm near my hometown of Brainerd, Minnesota, and it's not too far from my hunting camp. Well, just yesterday, about 14 months after this discussion with Dr. Cornicelli, We have our first recorded CWD-positive wild deer case outside of what's considered the hot zone, which are three counties down in southeast Minnesota. This is where the disease within our state has historically been found through testing. And so this press release that just came out yesterday is regarding a wild deer from northern Minnesota nearly 300 miles from the southeast region of the state where that hot zone is, and, and wild deer have, have been tested and found to have the disease. However, this this announcement yesterday also points out that it was only a half mile from the captive cervid farm that Dr. Cornicelli and I are talking about in this conversation from nearly two years ago. And so the important thing to know is that that cervid farm... Did, had previously uh, been found to have CWD-positive deer inside their fences. Another thing I'd like to clarify, because there's a lot of terms thrown around, and just to make sure everybody understands this. So when we talk about captive cervid farms, what are they? It's really a fenced-in area, generally wooded acreage or a farm, where deer and elk are captive and then harvested, through shooting. I wouldn't call it hunting, or as Dr. Cornicelli says, it's high fence killing of domesticated animals. So you might hear terms, other terms, reference of these types of operations, either high fence hunts, or shooting pens, or shooting preserves, but that's what we're talking about here. And I'm sure that most of these captive servid captive farms are doing everything that they can to contain their animals and stop the spread of this disease. But the reality is that the evidence points to an undeniable connection between these outfits and the disease. Minnesota has confirmed CWD in seven, uh, at least seven, I believe, farmed servid operations. So we know it's there. Uh, the deer uh, annou- the announcement yesterday again, was just within a half mile of a captive servid facility. And that same facility had previously had CWD-positive deer found inside, inside of their fences. And, and so then the question may come of, okay, well, where did it come from inside that farm? Well, that farm had previously um, bought uh, uh, deer or exchanged deer with another servid farm that the USDA had found had also had CWD, and they actually bought it. The USDA bought that farm and depopulated it. In other words, they euthanized every one of the deer because of the risk it was supposed it was um, um, posing to the to the herd. So the reality is that when deer are transported from one operation to another, we we see a connection in that transfer of CWD. And here in Minnesota, like many states across the US, the challenge is that um, the Board of Animal Health oversees regulation of livestock, such as these farms, but the Department of Natural Resources oversees the regulation and management of the wild deer herd. And all we have between those two populations are these wire fences, and the reality is um, that, that there are oftentimes breaches in these and we get a mixture of those, those two herds. So the question you need to consider is what level of risk are we willing to take with our wild deer herd and what can be done to manage the risk in the best way possible? Here in Minnesota right now, we have a legislator, uh, Minnesota Representative Jamie Becker-Finn, uh, she recently introduced legislation um, or discussed legislation this last week to get in front of CWD and better manage the risks to our deer herd and the hunting community. And I'll put information on on those, those uh, links within the show notes page. So I hope today's conversation is informative and that you come away with some new insights on these topics and uh, enjoy. Okay, I am joined this morning here with Lou Cornicelli, uh, who is, uh, I believe your current role is wildlife research manager. For, I am. Okay, yes. great. For the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources. Um, I've known Lou for for quite a few years here. I think we met with the adult mentor to uh, hunt. We mentored adult learn to hunt folks. Yeah. yeah. At St. Croix State Park. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, and so... You know, I've I've obviously um, read a lot of things in terms of you. You were previously uh, the big game program leader here in Minnesota, correct? correct? Yep. Okay. And in that role, you, from a biologist perspective, are setting standards
1: for management of of the deer herd, correct? Correct. Yeah. We everything from uh, helping set population goals with a public process to designing regulations that, at the time that I started, the regulations were designed, Or or, I I was charged with figuring out easier ways to kill deer. So we'd we'd gotten rid of the lottery system uh, in 2003 in a lot of the state. And so, you know, the goals were to kind of make it easier for people to get out and hunt and, and take deer, figure out what those populations should be. And also we did a lot of work on looking at alternative regulations uh we did a lot of antler point restriction research that that uh culminated in that APR that's down in the southeastern Minnesota so you know do a lot with deer you know and then yeah. that big game position also covers moose and elk so it's a it's a full-time times two job <laughs> absolutely <laughs> so
0: here's one thing that i think a lot of people actually there was there was a study this last year with uh, on, on general American population regarding the topic of hunting and I found it interesting that a lot of people did not realize or do not realize um, that that the animal populations are managed uh, they just sort of you know have this idea that people grab a gun and go out and hunt and they aren't regulated and so maybe if you could share with people just what is the basics of I mean your discipline in terms right. of how how wildlife is managed
1: yeah I mean that's that's a it's it's a good history to tell. Um, a lot of uh, wildlife harvest was unregulated through their turn, the turn of the 20th century, into the 1900s. And that's where you saw the depletion of game populations, extinction of some species like the passenger pigeon. Um, the dramatic declines in waterfowl for plumage. Uh, uh, You know, in 1903, uh, Theodore Roosevelt designated the first National Wildlife Refuge, Pelican Island. Um, So that that conservation history really started with uh, uh, the Boone and Crockett Club that was formed by Gifford Pinchot and Theodore Roosevelt and others through, through a conservation congress. And it's evolved over time. And really the first game laws Came into, into into effect in the very early 1900s with the Migratory Bird Treaty Act in 1918, the Lacey Act in 1900 or 1903. So, we we had this we being our you know the the the, the folks who thought deeply about perpetuation of game species um, started to institute these laws. And and over time, starting really with Aldo Leopold in Wisconsin, we had this this field called wildlife management, and people started to, to to manage game populations and Leopold wrote a book in I think it was nineteen thirty three or thirty eight called Game Management. And that's still a book that students have to read. It's the basic premise of managing fish and game populations for the public good. And this profession has really evolved you know, through that time and it's that modern conservation through the sale of hunting and fishing licenses that gives us the the species that we have today. So we, we work we work or manage under a system where users pay in the form of licenses, but everyone benefits. And, and that benefit is it can be consumptive, it can be non-consumptive. So the, you know our field really came about as a product of over-harvest and no regulations to where it is now where we've actively managed wildlife species. And more, more importantly, their habitats uh, for the benefit of, of both the species and the folks that like to use them
0: you know and that that's something that that I, lo- I love telling that story of 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 um hunters and anglers um who raised their hands and said we need to self regulate back when they back when they were problems. and, and I think it was it was a very the outcome was exactly what you said what we have today and we've got healthy populations we've got these wonderful wild places that everyone has access to and can benefit from
1: yeah, I agree. You know, and I think what I think what does also get lost um if you think about let's let's forget anglers. I don't, I don't deal so much with, sure, with them, bet. but uh if you think about hunters I uh the most people and probably including hunters don't know that this thing we call the North American model of wildlife conservation is funded by people who buy hunting and fishing licenses. Right. And I can speak for my agency, uh, Division of Fish and Wildlife. I work in the section of wildlife. We get no tax revenue. We we, didn't, we get zero general fund money. Now, we get outdoor heritage money that we compete for. We get some LCCMR money. But the vast majority of what we do is funded by people who buy hunting and fishing licenses and then leveraged against the Federal Aid and Restoration Program, Pittman-Robertson, where we get a reimbursement back based on on money's going in from excise taxes, again, on, on hunters, uh, and that comes, gets a portion back out into the states. So even though the vast majority of what we do as a wildlife agency is funded by people who buy licenses, we do that recognizing that society benefits from those wildlife management practices. And I would, I would argue and, and bet the ranch that most people don't know that state wildlife agencies across the country generally don't get general fund revenues. I I I'm sure people yeah,
0: don't. Yeah. I mean I don't know if I if I knew that in terms of that being a standard across country. Um you know, you touched on something a moment ago that is that is unique to Minnesota and uh Arkansas or where is the other Missouri. Missouri. Um and uh I had your boss on recently, uh Commissioner where, and I was gonna ask him about it but I mm-hmm. but I forgot. Um, so Talk a little bit about the Outdoor Heritage Fund and what that is here, in Minnesota. Yeah,
1: and it's a so it's a it's a it's a sales tax that everybody pays. It goes to uh, you know there's the clean water portion, there's the par- arts and park arts portion, parks, uh, and then the the Outdoor Heritage Fund, which is what we compete for and work very closely with Pheasants Forever and Ducks Unlimited and, and local sportsmen's clubs, uh, Deer Hunters Association, uh, to, to on grants and projects. So we. Um, it's a, it's basically a self-imposed it is a self sales tax that was added to the Minnesota Constitution in 2008. And what all of us found really interesting about that is you hear people don't want to pay and people don't want to contribute. And yet, in order to pass a constitutional amendment, 60% of people have to say yes. Mm-hmm. So if you fail to check a box, that's a no. So in, in this state, I think it was, it was over 60% uh, during a, you know, during a recession in 2008 voted to tax themselves for conservation. So that's, that's tremendous, you know, and that, that put, that puts money uh, into areas that we wouldn't be able to work and it helps with acquisition. It helps for restoration and enhancement. So it's, it's, now it's only enabled for 25 years. So let's hope that it gets re-enabled at the end of that that period. But, you know, think about it. During the worst recession in modern times, Minnesota people, in a... a Clear majority voted to tax themselves for conservation. Right. So right. I mean that's kind of crazy. Find another state that does that. Right. Right. And, and I and I think that's a, you know that's a that's a pure byproduct of whether whether you hunt or fish in this state. This is a tremendous state for outdoor recreation. Whether that's our state park system, state recreation areas, wildlife management areas. If we have 1.3 million acres, county, state forest, national forest, the boundary waters. Um, this, you you can go any direction and find something to do in this state, even if you don't hunt. And I think folks look at that and say, Hey, I want clean water. I want wildlife habitat and, and I'm willing to pay for it. And they did. And I think that's just that, that conservation ethic that the people in this state have, regardless of whether or not they buy a license.
0: Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I'm not from here, and I say that. <laughs> <laughs> Cornicelli. Yeah, yeah, I know. I'm, yeah. I'm Norwegian. So, <laughs> so um, the state is rich with a lot of opportunity, like you just described. Um, there's a strong commitment to conservation, which is wonderful. Um, it's not without its challenges, though. No. And, and that's one of the things I wanted to talk about with you here today. Um CWD, chronic wasting disease, is something that this is the 2017 deer season we're heading into here, and... Um and and you've set in place a lot of a lot of um, requirements because of the current threat. So first of all, maybe just for for our listeners, just start with the basics. Chronic wasting disease. What is it it? it?
1: it it's uh you always start there. It's exactly what it sounds like. You know, it's it's a disease that uh, is chronic, so it's long lived. It causes long term uh, uh, problems to the individual. Wasting is what it does. It basically wastes the animal away, and then it's, you know, disease, obviously. So it's, a, it's what's called a prion, so which is basically a, a misshapen protein. And what happens is that prion is malformed, and then it accumulates in the brain. It causes spongiform vacuoles or holes in the brain, of which then you have neurological problems and you die. Um, it was first identified in 1967 in Colorado it was described as what they call a TSE or transmissible transmissible spongiform encephalopathy in 1975 i think it is um, and that class of diseases is similar to the bovine spongiform variety scrapie sheep which has been known for about 300 years so mad cow hoof and foot uh, my mad, mad cow uh, is the, is the is the colloquial term for bovine spongiform encephalopathy right. so um, public calls it mad cow which is fine <laughs> both of us we call it bsc you know so um but it's the same thing yeah uh um w- the human variant is called creutzfeldt jakob disease and that occurs spontaneously in about one in a million people and it comes on about 68 years old um so there's a, uh, and scrapie is the sheep variant so this this these prions have been known for quite some time they're fairly species specific um but not known for very long in the, in cervids. So the concern from our perspective is it's such a slow disease to, to, to develop. It takes a long time for it to accumulate in the population in terms of prevalence or percent of the population that's infected. But we're starting to see that after those 50 years in Colorado and Wyoming, there's, there's some studies that are showing population level effects because of the disease. So enough deer are infected that survival rates um, are going down, impacting recruitment rates coming in, and that impacts population size. And If you look at Wisconsin, they're kind of on the same trajectory in terms of the prevalence going up, but they're not yet seeing a population response. And the, the they likely will within my in my lifetime they will for sure. So our concern with a disease like this that is so that can be so pervasive on the landscape and once you it, it takes a foothold, there's nothing we can do about it with respect to eliminating it. We're gonna have to live with it. That our goal is to design these surveillance strategies um, that if it's here, we find it early, and we do things as an element of risk. We were talking before we got started about how much it costs to do a sample. We send our samples to Colorado State University, and the diagnostic test is seventeen dollars a sample. That doesn't sound like a lot, but we're going to do we're going to do ten thousand this year, wow. and and that doesn't include you know the staff time, all the equipment we have to buy. Right, um, it's a it's going to be a million dollar project this right. year, and that's right. just to see if we have it. Um, But we do this stuff based on risk. So we know we have the disease in Iowa and Wisconsin. So we tested in the southeast, and sure enough, we found this one location where we have it. We don't know if it's due to natural migration or farm servage yet, but we know we have it in Preston. Um, The other risk is is, uh, when a farm servage facility is positive, and we have two of those now. We've had seven total in the state, but uh, two... Uh, recently, so we're doing surveillance around those farm servant facilities. So, it's uh, it's all about measuring risk and early detection, and that's why you're seeing what we're doing now so <clears throat> you talk about the farm uh um uh,
0: location which is actually near my right by my hometown. right we we're talking about yeah that. and uh right right down the road from where i hunt so one of the one of the uh, areas where uh there's mandatory testing is my hunting area so if i get a get a deer this weekend i'm gonna have, have to bring it in and yep. and so we can do that seventeen dollar test
1: right exactly um and we'll pay for that one. Oh, thank you <laughs> <laughs> appreciate that look
0: um so so talk a little bit about the farm to serve it. it when when you say that what do mm. you mean and sh- sure sure well, insights
1: for for yeah people. well you know in, in minnesota it's legal to raise uh deer and elk as livestock so they're regulated by the board of animal health um the 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 board has stuff with air tags behind the fence and the The Department of Natural Resources has the wild deer population outside the fence. Mm -hmm. So when I say farm servids, I'm talking about domesticated or semi domesticated deer and elk that are owned that are considered that are that are statutorily considered livestock in the state of Minnesota right so these these farms are created uh for what i, I would call a high fence hunt uh, i don't call it hunting it's high, <laughs> it's it's high fence killing of domestic animals right, so right. you can call it what you want um my uh, to be to be to be fair uh when this started come when this came about in the mid two thousands, my agency uh, uh, stood in strong opposition to shooting pens and shooting facilities, shooting preserves, whatever you want to put. You know, call right. af- after pick what you want after shooting. Um, uh, so we've been opposed to those since two thousand six, and 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 you know we would likely continue to be opposed today. Um, it's not it's not hunting.
0: I agree. I I would I would argue that that most of the people who are coming to hunting today who are adults who make a conscious decision to start would have zero interest in doing that. They come to it from the standpoint of wanting that authenticity of engaging in a wild place with with the the challenge and the opportunity and knowing that that animal is wild and has been living its life out out in the wild and knowing that their success rate might not yeah. be as high.
1: But yeah, it's real. I, I agree. You know, like we talked about with the adult learn, learn to hunt program. Yeah. Uh, you know, you've put a lot more effort into it than I have. and, and uh, But I think we'll, we'll certainly agree that a piece of that adventure is the hunt. Mm-hmm. And a smaller piece is the kill. It's the whole thing that leads up to it. And, and that's where the memories are. And that's what gets people going. Um, I, I, would, I would think that it's not... Um, Paying money to shoot something behind a fence is your measure of success in, in the outdoors. Um, right, but it's legal and people do it. Yeah. So, so, um, so talk a little bit about I guess what is what are the risks
0: relative uh, relative to CWD and and these operations? Do they create environments that that would promote it's the it's, spread?
1: It's hard to say. You know, there's okay. been a there was a uh, there was a lot of news recently about a, a, a federal Lacey Act violation. Um, these guys are moving uh, deer off a CWD positive farm in Pennsylvania to Alabama. So, we're always concerned about the, the black market for, for live deer for shooting pens or for whatever reason. So, that's going to exist whether or not uh, um, you can move, you know, if a state says you can't move animals out of state or in state, people are going to break the law. So, there's gonna, always going to be concerns about illegal trafficking of big game animals from places that have CWD. Um, you know, and, you know, we, we also concern, we know we've had the disease seven t- in seven facilities in Minnesota. Um, so Se- seven, seven farm service. Farm s- okay. Farm so we know, service. It's okay. been, we know it's yeah. been imported. Right. So that's our, our concern is that what, what level of risk are we willing to take for a highly valuable wild deer population?
0: So we do know, so, a farmed servant operation in Minnesota. It's going to get its stock not from the wild.
1: No, that be that's illegal. So, so clearly, you know, somewhere somewhere along the line, uh, farm deer were taken out of the wild and elk were taken out of the wild for for farming purposes. Um, you know that that ship has sailed. Um, right. Uh, but no, they're they're considered livestock. But obviously, they're originally of, of wild origin. They have
0: to be. So, if so we know, yeah. I mean, so what I what I hear you saying is if we've got seven reported cases in cervid, uh farming operations in Minnesota, we know the, that has come from elsewhere, not from our wild herd here
1: uh, that's, in the there's, state. There's been no evidence to suggest that any of, those, any of those seven farms since 2002 have come from the wild. We've done... We've done surveillance in almost all cases around facilities. We had one in Lockett Park County we didn't do, and we had one in Stearns County we didn't, didn't do because it was one one elk. There weren't a lot of deer, so we, and we were kind of early in the phases of learning about this disease. Um, but then we had Pine Island where we had this elk farm that had CWD-positive elk. We also had a, a known history of deer getting into that facility um, through gaps and fences and under fences and... Um, And then we had a CWD-positive deer uh, two miles from the infected facility. Now, some would argue that it could have walked 100 miles from Wisconsin, swam the Mississippi River, and happened to get CWD two miles from a net-positive elk farm. I've heard that one. (laughs) I'm going to go with it was associated with the elk farm. Um, I can't, you know, much like I can't prove life on other planets, I can't prove that that's not the case. But certainly the the, the evidence would suggest that uh, um, an elk farm that's got a real problem and a deer if that's positive two miles away, I'm going to go with not the deer. Um, you know, so we deal with that, at, you know, as risk. I, I, I've got a really good friend who works for USGS, Brian Richards, who's been on several podcasts talking about the disease. And he's talked about um, uh, the, these, the farms that are called like level six or, or no, you know, perfect testing type stuff. I think Two-thirds of the most recent CWD infections have been farms that have had, you know, clean testing records. So it's hard to say where is it coming from, how is it getting imported, what role do wild animals play. You know, uh, we know it's on the landscape in Wisconsin, so now it's like, is it deer, farm deer, or wild deer? Now it doesn't matter. Yeah, Um, yeah. So our our goal and working with the Board of Animal Health is, you know, test everything that dies like you're supposed to do knowing that we can't test every deer every wild deer but we you know you don't have to because they're they're wild and and uh, um, risk is relative but but we do we do a lot of testing you know in areas where where we we see risk and again some of that's risk from other wild deer in other states some of that risk is farm served facilities yeah so we all we all kind of share it so what about People feeding deer, putting corn out in their yard, or yeah, whatever. that's you know even you know set aside the disease issue with with deer feeding. It makes people feel good. Um, my my joke over the years is deer have, the the genus the white-tailed deer genus Odocoileus has been uh, on the planet about six million years. Over that time, they have figured out how to eat. Um, you don't need to feed deer. I think it causes you know it it. It disrupts natural environments because deer congregate and, and destroy vegetation. It, it causes Hatfield and McCoy relationships among landowners. Um, it increases deer vehicle collisions, of which my wife hit one last night, um, not related right. to feeding, but yeah. she creamed her car last yeah. night. Yes, she's okay. Um, but uh, it, it just doesn't, you know, it makes us feel good, but it doesn't help. The population overall, and in in some cases, you know, we're sitting in Grand Rapids. Um, the the digestive system, ruminant digestive system, is very it's very fine. You know, it, mm-hmm. there's a lot of microbial action going on. There's a there's a lot of stuff that goes on in the rumen of of a, of a, a cow or a deer or anything else, um, and you can't disrupt that very quickly. And and a good analogy is think about a, your dog. You know, nobody would go from you know, a low-protein, cheap dog food to a high-protein, you know, uh, um, hunting-type dog food. What happens? You're, you're cleaning up a lot of mess in the house because it disrupts the GI system. They have to adapt rather slowly. So what happens with corn and, and deer when deer are not used to having corn in their diet, it causes something called acidosis. In other words, they, it's a grain overload. Um, uh, they can't, their body can't process it, and they die. Now, they rarely die around your feeder. They go die someplace else. So, in in a lot of cases, again, particularly in areas where where the where the, the deer gut is not used to 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 grain, um, you know those starches that convert to sugars, or even high protein with 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 hay, um, they can cause real that kills them. And, uh, mm-hmm. Now, I wouldn't say the same thing if you, you know, if you're living in ag country and you're feeding deer, I'm not going to say that deer are going to die from acidosis. Sure. Clearly, clearly they're not because they eat corn. Um, but in some areas, it, it it causes pretty significant deer mortality.
0: The area I hunt, there's very little ag, yeah. you know, up, up north woods. And, and I've, uh, I can imagine yeah. it, would yeah. be, it would be yeah very
1: and, and you think about the way their gut... And their, their metabolism and their diet changes as winter progresses. You know, they go into a, a period where they're just trying to get by. You know, mm-hmm. they're, they're eating a lot of bro- low nutritional browse. You know, they're eating uh, poor quality forage to get through the winter. Um, and when you shock that system with something uh, uh, that they're not used to, it, it kills them. You know, um, so does
0: um, – back to the CWD relative to, to feeding um, – is it proven or is it just suspected that is is transmission via saliva? And so, if they're congregating over a pile and there's Correct. you know five six deer, yep. so okay, so yeah. That, so
1: so flipping back to disease, it is um, it's it's a it's a disease that's directly transmitted. So it's transmitted from uh, feces, saliva, urine, bodily fluids. So by feeding you're also congregating deer over a common food source and infected animals is spitting on that food and then another animal is picking up that prion and becoming infected so when we ban feeding which we have done in the in the CWD surveillance areas it's because we want we don't know if we have disease so we yeah. want to do everything we can to separate that not, that unnatural contact right
0: right No, that that, make, that makes sense is um CWD um, can it transmit to humans? Uh,
1: we don't think so right now. Um, all the research that's been done to date has indicated that it's very cervid-specific. Uh, that said, there's a, there's a study in Canada that, that we're waiting for the results to be released that may indicate something otherwise. We don't know right now. It's um, there's, there's a study of macaques, which apparently are genetically very similar to humans. Mm. I'm not a geneticist. I'm repeating what I've, what I've read. Um, but you know if that study shows a real human health link then i think that changes how we how the whole conversation about Absolutely. cwd but to date it's it's no the answer has been no now that the center for disease control and prevention always says don't eat positive deer which you shouldn't anyway for any disease um but that cautionary approach is, is one to take, I think, because we just the science you know is always science is ever evolving and and you know uh, what you say last year may not be applicable to what you say next year, and that's not because we're changing our minds it's because the the you know we we stand on each other with with the, this basic science that tells us how we should inform um, these issues, and that changes so what about um what about a cure, or how is it best managed? In uh, you know, right now it's best managed by not having it, yeah. and and if you do have it, find it early and try and eliminate it. That doesn't mean eliminate deer, but mm-hmm. it, it means lowering populations. It means reducing the the opportunity for the disease to take to get a, get a foothold. Um, so. Right, there isn't. There isn't. Uh, a, there isn't a vaccine. There isn't. Uh, you don't recover from it, which is, you know, the other scary thing is if an animal picks up this disease, if it doesn't die from some other method, it's going to die from this. So, right. um, that's what kind of gets those. Those of us who think about again, we're the very first we started talking about this North American model and conservation and where we are. You know, when you work for an agency, you don't think about. You know, how's it going today? You, you have to kind of think about that future generation. And when we deal with a disease like this, it's not so much your deer hunting or deer populations affected in, in this moment in time. We think about what it's going to be like in a um, 50 years from now. Um, so...
0: You, that's enough talk about disease. Okay, perfect. You you recently went on on an elk hunt, I believe, correct? I did. I'm, uh, uh,
1: despite my undersized stature, I'm an avid elk hunter. So I spent seven years in Utah, and uh, uh, I've been, since I moved here, I think I've been back west four times to hunt elk. Okay. I, uh, I very much enjoy elk hunting.
0: So where, where did you go this last hunt?
1: This last trip was southwest Colorado near Creed. Okay. Um, the the town was 8,800 feet. Uh, we had uh, um, I hunt with some close friends down from the southeast, and we dragged out six horses and two mules, and, and uh, we were camped about six or so miles from the trailhead at, at camped at 10,600 feet and i shot my bull at just under 11,700 feet so i was in the the wilderness we were in the uh, i can't say it winemachi uh, wilderness area so okay it was okay. pretty cool if
0: from the pictures you showed me it, that looks like the quintessential hunt i mean it just really looks awesome
1: um it, I don't know how it could have gotten much better. You know, I killed I killed a nice bull. I'm perfectly happy. He'll score maybe 300 or so. Um, so not the Boone and Crockett wall hanger, but I don't really care. Um, I had a great experience with, with, with some friends that I've had for a long time. We had two uh, new elk hunters in the group that went out. One of them had never hunted anything, and they both were successful. Um, just had a great time with folks that, you know, Talking about elk hunting, talking about elk behavior, you know, talking about being around horses and mules and what you need to do and and how to take care of the animals in the morning and then in the evening and and how to take care of your elk once it's down with the meat, you know, taking care of the meat and getting it packed out and, and so... Being able to teach kind of these new elk hunters, um, the group of us or four of us that are that are uh, pretty avid elk hunters, and, and you know being able to share some of that knowledge and just how excited they were to, you know, the one gentleman who had never wasn't much of a hunter, you know, said it was a life-changing experience for him. I mean, that's pretty cool. That is, that's really you know, cool. and and it's all done at 11,000 feet in the Colorado oh, mountains. My gosh. And, you know, it's just. Spectacular. So,
0: had he hunted other other animals?
1: Uh, bird. A couple times, birds. Okay. So yeah. So it was okay. it was all new to him. He had a lot of gear. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, I uh, uh, they were they were unloading the stuff and uh, um, uh, it was kind of like, well, does somebody say they got too much stuff or not? But you know, we we were we packed it in. We were on horses. Well, we had mules to pack. But, yeah. Uh, so it wasn't that big. That wasn't it. Wasn't a hardship, but. I'm I'm different because a lot of my my elk hunting's been backpacking, so mm-hmm. I'm a minimalist. Yeah. You know my my all of my gear combined, you know, weighed I think it was forty pounds. Okay, and it didn't matter if I was going on, on a on a, a horseback hunt or a foot hunt. So I put up I've got one duffel bag that's got all my camping gear and another got duffel bag that's got all my clothes and I've got a backpack with my snacks and, and I'm, that's it. Yeah. and here comes the stuff, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so that that was fun, and then when I killed when I killed my elk, so we were we we're kind of taking gear out as somebody killed an elk. We we we'd take another mule and pack yeah. you know pack stuff out that they, that they didn't need. So I got mine and i looked around you know my spot in the, in the wall tent and i said well i could take like my binoculars out but i don't have that much stuff <laughs> you know so it was uh it was fun but uh, they had a great time they they dealt well with the altitude one yeah. guy got a little bit sick but okay. he he was okay actually he uh and good good on him he uh uh wasn't feeling well in the tent and so one of the guys said you want you know do you want to stay for the day he says i can feel like Crap here, I could feel like crap there. Shot a bull that night. He did. Yep, oh, he did. Great. So he said he got up. He got up uh to where his spot. He wanted to sit. Sun came up and he went to sleep. And he yeah. felt better when he woke up and moved and shot a decent bull towards the evening. So I mean, good on him. I might have just laid in camp, but that's great. Yeah, so it was it was great. I mean, you can't. Again, you know, we talk, I know you talk a lot about public lands and mm-hmm. and. Look at all, look at the West, and yeah. even in Minnesota, all the wildlife management areas yeah. we have, but that public land access is key, you know, for those of us that don't own land, you know, <laughs> um, and want to go hunt elk. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Yeah. it was, it was fantastic. So, you guys packed it on horses whose uh, horses'
0: mules were they uh, do you rent them or no friend of mine, friend mine down okay. friend of
1: mine down in harmony uh, okay they've got okay. harmony in caledonia they've got they've got both mules and horses and, okay and they've been elk hunting for a long long time so oh my gosh, so yeah, it so was good. neat it was i've done when i lived out west i i uh did a fair bit of horse horse riding and we did some hunting overnight stuff with uh um uh with horses and we would do high lake stream surveys for fisheries so so we'd pack in you know for every once in a while do that kind of stuff but i've never done a, this true you know western we're packed in for a week Kind, right. of, kind of hunt right, so right. It's, a, it's a lot of work you know again yeah. taking care of the horses is a lot of work so were you in how many how many
0: animals did you get
1: we got three for four okay so, three for four yep.
0: wow that's great and you were able to so with the with the animals you had with the horses and the pack mules you were able to get everything out all three animals out
1: yep we could fit a uh, an elk on a mule okay. so we you know you bone it right there in the field so yeah. it's coming out boneless and you can tie the antlers on top of the pack frame um, and then the mule can get the whole thing out.
0: And I think you had a little, uh, competition with a friend on the, or a, a uh, judging of which, which gutting method or field dressing method was better.
1: <laughs> I, I did. It wasn't, we, we don't gut a, You don't tend to gut them, but we, we, uh, had a, a nice little debate on, I, I do, a, I do it a certain way and, and he does it a different way. So,
0: and both of them are gutless, method, yeah, right? gutless methods. Yeah, gutless
1: methods. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So, so, uh, uh, um, so we did one side my way and the other side, his way. We were out in a meadow, and what they typically do is they take the quarters off with the hair on, then they hang them, and then skin the quarters um, uh, and take the, and bone the meat. The way I do it is is I, I skin half the animal and basically use half the hide as a tarp, and then you bone it on the side, put it on your new tarp, flip it over, do the same thing on the other side. So we did them both ways, and the problem was we were in a meadow, so there were no trees to hang it. <laughs> so... So when we took the quarter off on his his way, we got it we got it boned, but we had to put the meat on my new my fresh new tarp. tarp. So so (laughs) in in the and then we did my elk we my elk was in the trees and we did it we did it his way because we could hang it and and his way worked fine when there's trees. My way way works really well when there's no trees. So so we had we had a good time with that. But but we did well. We we ended up taking an elk apart in like an hour and a half. So it's uh, it's. It's uh once you know what you're doing, it's, it, it's not too tough, but, but again, it's all part of the experience. You, yeah, know? It's, it's, yeah. you can't beat it. No,
0: you can't. We just, uh, when I was out in Wyoming for an antelope hunt a few weeks ago, we did shot a video on, on just how to, how to quarter an animal out in the, out in the field, did an instructional piece that we'll, we'll produce and push out here soon. But it's, uh, there it's, there are few things in life that are as rewarding as taking an animal and then all the way through to the process you know, to, I, the, to, to the table.
1: I, I agree. You know, we used to do pronghorn si- similarly because their they're, their skin's real glandy. Mm-hmm. And so we would take a, a real tarp out to the pronghorn and uh, put it on the tarp and then take the skin off and then uh-huh. throw the skin in the sagebrush and then quarter it right there and then put it in coolers and, and carry it out. We never... We never gutted pronghorn and threw them in the back of the truck and drove them around for a couple of days. They're, they're, <laughs> they don't do well. They don't, do well. They don't yeah. taste good yeah. when you do yeah. that. Um, but, but pronghorn are fantastic when you take care of the meat. Yeah. So, we we um, we
0: pretty much we quartered it right there yeah. and uh and then got it right in the coolers. And uh I've had two meals of of yeah. of some since and it's been it's been great. Yeah, they're very good. When yeah. you treat
1: them right, they're very good. Yeah. So I've had yeah. some pretty bad pronghorn too yeah. over the years. But uh uh when you really take care of that meat they're they're quite quite good. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Elk well. elk's still the best, but but yeah. uh yeah. So elk
0: moose too. Uh, moose is okay yeah. for me.
1: I mean, it's all your palate. I'm yeah. I'm not a huge fan of deer. I don't, okay. I don't, I, uh, I, I like it just fine. But if I'm not a big fan of just taking a deer steak and throwing it on, throwing it on the grill. Okay. I'd rather do something with it. Okay. Um, But elk steak, you just throw some salt on it and throw it on the grill. And it's fantastic. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, and all, again, it's palate. Some people mm-hmm. think deer is better than elk, right, but right. Uh, a good, well, bang. Remember Ben, Yeah, Uh, he got a couple of bison. Yeah, yeah. So he gave me a a bison neck roast that I I slow cooked for about a day and a half. And wow, he's offered me
0: some of that bison. I haven't I haven't taken it yet. Wow, sounds like I need to. You got to slow cook it. He admitted
1: that it was an old cow. Okay. Um, so don't throw it on the grill. But uh, I ended up cooking this neck roast for I think a full day or slightly over a day. I forget. But man, it was good. It was really good.
0: I just uh, went down the other day. To, uh, friend John Whitfly. he's uh, his lo- local chef who does a lot of wild game stuff. He just came. Out oh the yeah,
1: I, s- I saw him on a. Um, where did I see him? He's been doing a media tour right yes. now. He was on
0: TV, I yes. think, uh, possibly maybe CCO or something. That's like what it, that. I think. That's yeah. what it was. Yeah, yeah, it
1: looked pretty intriguing. I actually I actually looked at the book um, after he was talking. So I looked on the book on on Amazon, and, and it's a it's a. Great book for beginners because it takes you through the entire process. Exactly. So um, no, right.
0: we're d- we're going to do a giveaway. I picked up a copy of it, a signed copy. We're mm-hmm. going to do a giveaway soon cool. on ModCar. But he's got. I was looking through it the other night. He's got a uh, a venison neck split pea soup. Really? That looks really good. Huh. You know, it's uh, huh. interesting. W- w- one way to use a neck.
1: But, yeah. Uh, you know, and and you know the ribs ribs aren't bad either. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's stuff we don't the cuts we don't really think about. Yeah. Um, yeah. like with elk, elk neck I mean, there's a there's a lot of meat, so um, we typically grind all that. But uh, you know, there's there's an amazing amount of meat on an elk or even a, a deer when you do it right. So.
0: Yeah, all all kinds of different parts that uh, that, that you can utilize. A lot yeah. of people
1: don't. I think. Uh, yeah. And uh, uh, what's that book? Buck buck moose. Buck, I buck think. Moose yeah. Hank. I yeah. Hank I, uh, yeah. I, yeah. Hank's book. I bought it for a friend who was who uh, went took a faculty position in georgia so I, I don't i don't have a copy but i thumbed through it when i when i bought it for for him so i need to get a, another copy yeah. But but yeah i mean that but that's that's also part of it you know you think about um acquiring your own protein but taking care of it and then cooking it you know that that's the that's the next step and you don't have to be a you, you got to be mindful about cooking venison because mm-hmm. of the lack of fat and you dry it out and then it does doesn't taste good but there's a lot of really good recipes that you don't need to be a you know a Michelin star chef to right. make. you know right. It, right. basic ingredients and, and cook it the correct way. And I'm I'm not obviously not a chef, but, but I cooked a lot of venison. <laughs> um, you know, you, you, and it doesn't take you don't need eye of newt in the recipe to make it to make it good. You got to be careful, but right. But it's good stuff.
0: Yeah, you know? no, absolutely. You got to cook it right, as a, yeah. my friend Jamie Carlson says. But uh, <laughs> but uh, it doesn't have to be fancy. Well, Lou, I appreciate you taking time here this morning to to chat with me about uh, about deer, about CWD, about your elk hunt, et cetera. And uh, it's been fun. Oh, so. it's
1: always a pleasure, Mark. Always a pleasure.
0: Thanks a lot. You bet. I hope today's podcast was interesting and that you came away with some new insights on these important topics and enjoyed the conversation with Dr. Lou Cornicelli. There will be links to important information that was referenced in the podcast on our show notes page, including information on the um, legislation uh, that Representative Jamie Becker-Finn here in Minnesota is introducing to the legislature to get in front of CWD and better manage the risks to our deer herd, uh, as well as other links. And you can go to modcarn.com forward slash podcast seven. That's the word podcast and the number seven.
1: Thanks for listening
0: to the Modern Carnivore Podcast. You can continue the journey by going to modcarn.com.